Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, from Luminary Medium. This week, my guest is Bruce Parry. Bruce Parry is an English documentarian, indigenous rights advocate, and former Royal Marines commando officer. Can you imagine? He's best known for his BBC documentary series, Tribe. Amazon, an Arctic where he explores extreme environments, lives with remote indigenous peoples and highlights many of the important issues being faced on the environmental front line. But having just had the conversation, and Bruce is still here, he's just filling in his release form right now. And actually, once he's signed it, I can say whatever the fuck I like about it. Right, he signed it. He's a... F- <laughs> um, no, like he's... Um, yeah, it's an amazing conversation. I think you'll love it because it's more than a kind of uh, clinical... A anthropological study of indigenous people it's more an attempt to spiritually understand inhabit the world and kind of harvest information that may have been lost in our collective memory new routes new maps for humanity out of the dirge and deluge of deadness that we find ourselves currently stagnating and perhaps perhaps into a new dawn there's some promotion for things that i do Look at my YouTube channel, subscribe to it, watch spiritual videos, watch me give you unsolicited advice about how to cope in this digital prison in which we currently find ourselves, this commodified world of consumerism in which we are currently shackled. Sign up to my mailing list on uh, russellbrand.com and you'll be the first to be told about my upcoming shows and receive exclusive content not found on my social media or YouTube channel. And say, for example, if I was about to go on a world tour trying to spread evangelical, revolutionary, spiritual ideas, you would hear about it first there. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rusty Rockets or Instagram at Russell Brand. TikTok, oh yeah, I'm on TikTok now at Russell uh, Brand Official. You can follow me there and on good old LinkedIn, Russell Brand. Follow me on all those things so that you've got a surround sound of my data continually. Last episode was with Angela Nagel. What a fascinating human being she is. Her understanding and analysis of the online spaces, I think, is uh, prophetic and brilliant. The Fifth Dimension podcast go. Really enjoyed this episode. Great discussion as always. Ofri Safira said, I just got her audiobook. Love it so far. Odd and profound to hear the internet ephemera I grew up on and which shaped me being analysed so articulately. Yeah, I like how you write text messages, Ofiria Safira. You're an articulate person yourself, mate. Well done. Odd and profound to hear the internet ephemera I grew up on and which shaped me being analysed so articulately. Nice sentence. All right, so... um, Let's get on with Bruce Parry now. This is a fantastic episode. You are going to love it and learn from it. See you on the other side. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Podcast definitely the best way to get information these days. It's like, yeah, because people want depth. Isn't that like an interesting rejection of the idea that we've been culturally led to understand that oh, everyone wants things to be sh- short and five minutes and sound bites and da da da. You know, there is of course there's the social media sort of short phenomena, but there's such an appetite for it's what I when I'm, I don't listen to music anymore. If I go on a run or anything. I listen to Do always you? podcasts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Football, and then just the people that I'm in football analysis, and then people that I'm interested in learning from. 
Okay. That's the. Yeah. No, I still get a vibe to. off music. I love music still. And yeah. I'll play music and I play podcasts. Do you still exercise a lot? I don't. Really? Because exercise is such a big part of your life for such a long time. It was time. for a while, yeah. Um, I'm, I'd like to get back into it. I want to get back into it. I need to, actually. I've, I'm feeling age a little bit at the moment. I had a couple of years when I made this film. When I left the BBC, I made a film. It took much too long. And I spent two years in an edit and like literally staring at a screen, not moving and not having a balanced life at all. And even though I knew I should be having a balanced life, feeling that I couldn't because time was running out, money was running out, I needed to get this thing done. And, and I felt my my whole physique literally go off a cliff after the first year. Because we were sat in a chair. Can we start then, Jen? Yeah? We might as well start. We could even yeah. probably include that. Thanks for coming around the skin, Bruce. So nice to meet you, mate. <laughs> it's nice really to nice it's, it's very nice to meet you as well. It's, an, it's a Louis Farouk brokered our meeting he, he texted me and said yeah. uh, you should meet bruce parry and i'm a fan of your work and your perspective uh, how what did you tell him you told him how we did just that had come a lovely about? chat we just had a lovely chat you know i don't well, know then he well. took it on himself to text me no, he just said you've got to meet russell and i said you know what i've been following russell's podcast for a long time and i've actually thought i'd love to go on one of russell's podcasts because i know i've seen your personal journey and i vibe a lot with where you're at and what you've been what you've been saying and I, I feel I've been on a very similar one have you tell yeah. us a bit about tell me what you mean what about your journey well I've um I started out very institutionally you know I started out military military I love military people <laughs> I've got to tell you I've like I've gone full circle on the kind of uh, rejection oh these people work for the state to the brave bravery the self-sacrifice you know I'm, I've gone on my journey with it too you know it's like mm. I I obviously <clears throat> was a marine and mm. and because I struggled a bit at home i joined the marines and it became my family i became like the most marine like of the marines that there is and took on board all that they are and then what does that mean selflessness honor no at the time if i'm looking back at it slightly negatively the the sort of um the 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 judgments of other sectors of society the sort of like the belief that the marines are the only thing and, and the best thing everyone else is a bit weak a bit weak and just yeah that, that's sort of like civvies are shit and we're, <laughs> we're, we're the only we're the dogs bollocks and we're the only thing and uh that was so i basically i was a very very um uh we, we'd call it corpist like in love with that world sort of um fully um signed up member of the marines and uh and then left and went through a journey of having amazing girlfriends who'd be like bruce wasted to attention in front of the tv because the fucking national anthem's on get Did back you literally into bed. Do that literally i was that guy i mean i was fully in do you think that's like sort of conditioning or did it feel like a personal choice i was just like no 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 it's personal choice i mean i'd left i was as me afterwards what so is that a literal example of like literal. the tv's on in the background yeah. and now it's like you know watching the rugby and, the, and then i'm like fucking it's like what the hell get back into bed you know i mean i i say it like in as as jest but that's how it was i was that was that was the guy so i was a very institutionalized being um <clears throat> very um yeah sort of english public school and royal marines very christian and then basically went on a journey of of having that broken down through essentially spending quality time with people who had different views and listening. And most informatively, of course, was girlfriends. Uh, and most gratefully, that sort of pillow talk and being in love, allowing you to question and them having the wisdom to not challenge me, but question me, ask me why. 
and then make me answer why. <clears throat> I'd not really thought about that, about the influence of people I've fallen in love with and how they changed me and cultivated me. I suppose, you know, when I think, of, perhaps when I was really young, I remember when I was about, um, in my early 20s, when I was at drama school, and I lived above a pub that I worked four shifts a week at in lieu of rent. And I fell in love with this woman that was a doctor and she was a couple of years older than me and a graduate from Cambridge. And I was so enamoured of her background and her style and her way. And she had an impact on me and in fact began a pattern of me really wanting the attention and approval of women that I felt were better than me. That that became a kind of an a kind of an imprint, but because I suppose uh, f- fame is such a seductive and dominating influence, that after that I suppose I, be, I I think I began to think of my journey as somewhat impersonal. Mm. You, moving, how old were you when you first really hit the, the thirty? Okay, like, I reckon I'd done, been doing that Big Brother show two or three years. Then I was on Jonathan Ross. Then there was a lot of tabloid stories about like I was dating a high-profile woman, and like from then it was like I became so famous I couldn't go anywhere, and it was mental. Yeah, like for yeah, yeah. like for about ten years. And do you feel you were prepared for it by having been a little bit older, thirty? Had you? Because I find that whenever you hit that moment, <clears throat> you just get arrested development wherever you're at and like no one then is challenging you on your little niggles and issues well also i'd, I'd have the arresting impact of drug addiction which i think is a s- comparable incubator mm. and sort of formaldehyde yes, of yes, personal yes, of for foibles and yeah, flaws yeah. so yeah there is something about it that freezes you but it seems that our journeys in s- some way are comparable in that that we've been <clears throat> had allied our identity to very sort of strong institutions or ideas and then been disabused of them of, of them recognizing totally. oh that's not real yeah. i mean the another big moment for me was actually i know i know your your personal relationship with drugs and, and where you look at it now and i've heard some of your conversations about people who've, who've taken um, psychedelics and what have you and, and seen them in a more healing perspective well i took a mushroom having been very anti-drugs most of my life if i'd seen someone smoke a spliff i'd have called the cops you know that was the <laughs> you're so extreme you're standing I mean, up in the national anthem yeah. i mean literally doing citizens arrests yeah, i love that that was a good start you spilled the water <laughs> got, i got russell to spill his water everywhere <laughs> um and uh yeah i mean literally fully anti and then fell in love and someone who invited me to explore something and i was so in love i i was willing to overcome this huge prejudice that i had and um and that moment was a life-changing moment for me it was like it totally made me reevaluate everything as well because i realized that so much so much, so much of what i believed it was it it wasn't um and the sort of the, the rhetoric at that time was so extreme anyway. There wasn't any softness towards those things. And so that <clears throat> sent me on another completely another journey. But that also had its ups and downs, of course. But um but um it, it became apparent to me before I then got the tribe job when I was gonna go and live with loads of indigenous peoples, I'd realised that I'd had so many of my prior judgments and prejudices completely turned on their head. That if I was going to go and live with these groups of people in the middle of nowhere, um, <clears throat> who had certain ways of being that I'm, I could carry a judgment about, but 
I just hadn't the confidence to bring judgments at that time. It's like, I'd better just shut up and listen because I might be wrong about everything like I have been before. How did you go from this military background, uh, this uh, public school, Christian education? How, how did you come? How did you transition from military to documentarian? Yeah, so um, I left the Marines and I was like head of physical training at the training center, the commando training center in the Marines. So it was, it was, the step for me to leave was to get into physicality. And so I, I went to Loughborough to do PE in sport, PE in sport. But I got really bored there, so I quit that and then started leading these expeditions out to Asia, leading science and conservation expeditions, which is probably the best job I've ever had, working with orangutans and turtles and rhinos and, and tiger out in How did that happen? How did you... my, um, because basically, as an officer in the Marines, I'd had sort of, um, on paper at least, uh, qualities for leadership in outdoor environments and uh, stressful environments so there's an expedition leader that was like on paper looked like something that was worthwhile and then I had a dear friend at school whose father was involved in some of these things and so I hooked up with his organization and found myself off in the middle of nowhere leading these trips and uh I mean the best job I've ever had it was amazing where were you going so Sulawesi, Saram, Ambon, Sumatra, Bali, Java New Guinea, all those places. How had your military career prepared you for that? That must have been a different set. Of- yeah, so the the main way it prepared you is that... So I was the leader, but I wasn't necessarily the most skilled. So I had doctors and nurses. I had ex- I had translators. I had carpenters. I had jungle experts all in the in the group but I was just the decision maker and that was something that I'd been prepared for as like able to assimilate information and then make um, non-frantic judgments I guess. God so that's what the skill set is that you've learned in the military that you're able to calmly go all right we'll do this we'll go this way no we'll stay here. Yeah I mean I think that when I compare myself to some of the civilian expedition leaders at the time the one thing that the, the marines offers you is this constant training of fucking up but not actually killing anyone you know you're going through these simulations of being under stress and making decisions all the time and in the training of being in the marines and that's something that's very hard to replicate in normal life what do, what are those drills or training what what like what do they do what did they what so you're just like uh, <laughs> so you know you're every phase of your year and a half's training to become a commander in the marines you're you're going through these different phases and then because you're an officer you'll you'll be You'll learn about the tactics and then you'll go out and you'll train in it. And then in the training in it, you'll take it in turns to be in charge. And then the team who are training you will throw these curveballs and say, right, the enemy is coming. And then you have to like figure out what you're doing while you're under fire. And, And it's very stressful because you really, really, really want to pass. It's like your whole egoic, youthful male angst is all like, I'm going to I'm going to succeed at this and so all of you is trying to be there and you might not have slept for days and you're absolutely knackered but you've just you know you're so you're under a lot of pressure but you just need to act and need to get it right and that's where they're training you can you tell me one memorable example of like field training or whatever the right term is that where you can remember feeling under incredible stress and making decisions yeah I mean like god I mean it's a long time ago but um yeah, so you, you you know, you might have walked for a, a couple of days, day and night, so you in, haven't slept. In Britain? In the, well, it'd be in Scotland or Wales generally, uh, in the pissing wet. Mm. Um, 
and then you're in charge so you have to then um how many people so there wouldn't be many because there's not many officers in the marines so we would have other guys come in and help out to be part of our gang so it'd be like 20 to 30 and then you'll take it in terms to be in charge so i'll be in charge and then i'll have um a sergeant and some other people around but i'll be writing the orders and making the orders so you have to then stay up so you go into a place all in silence having not slept for a couple of days to get there you you then have to all, all figure out where you're going to be doing your sort of like security bits. And then some people can get a bit of kit, but as the officer, you can't because you've now got to write the orders for the next phase. And then someone's making a map out of mud so that you can like create this thing where you can show people where you're going. And that's very stressful because then you've got to make up the plan of we're going to do this attack down here. And so I've got to all, write these orders whereby if this doesn't happen, what happens next? If this doesn't happen, if this is a problem, so you have all these contingencies that you have to write out in this performer that you you get it all figured out in, and and you have to have a plan. And then once once you've got that, then you get everyone around, and then you off, then you give the plan in a set of orders, which is definitely the hardest thing in the whole of the training is giving these orders with all of these contingencies and all of these ideas about what you're going to do and how it's going to work out. And then, of course, you go off and do it. So by now you haven't slept. And then as you're going along, the training team who will have their own body of like enemy forces will be coming in and attacking you at certain vulnerable moments. And then you have to then remember and hope that everyone else listening to you when you gave your orders will remember what you said that you will do if you're attacked at that time. And so all of these things have to be present for you and then reminding everyone and then getting into all these positions so that you can either attack or defend or whatever it is as a result of the orders you've given. And and when you are the person who is making those decisions and it's all going off, it's very, very easy to just get completely blocked in the head and very cluttered and very unable to have a calm reaction to being able to deal with this incredibly stressful moment and it doesn't sound like very stressful it does when you were describing it i was thinking that i would go like if someone put me through that like i can imagine that what i'd feel like is that i wanted to cry or just go off and, and be on and, my own and you do you cry uh, often in your sleep and go anything can't show the other it's not so much you can't show because everyone knows that you're going through it but like i just you, you pray for an injury so you can just leave and not have, <laughs> not have to deal because everyone's facing their ego they've told everyone that they're going to pass this thing i mean i was 18 when i started and and so you have no idea how hard it's going to be you've just told everyone in your life that you're going to do this thing and so they all expect you to do it and then to not actually succeed when you've got so much male youthful angst egoic angst there of passing this rite of passage that um that you just can't fail uh, but you but you wish you weren't there so desperately because it's so painful and it's so difficult it's very 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 hard i found it incredibly hard and um and so you just pray for death or or an injury or something to get you out of it but you can't there is no escaping it other than saying i'm not going to do it but which you just can't do because your ego and your youthful angst is too much i mean i suppose obviously the motivation behind that methodology is to create a sort of group psychology where people can be placed in stress environments that are very very stressful and still in those environments be relied upon to behave in a certain way notably i suppose like the sort of front line of power dynamics of go into this place control these resources kill these people or whatever and 
piss someone one go oh fucking hell this, I don't think this is right that we're doing this or something. well the weird thing is is that you suddenly lose all connection to the reasons why you're doing it and the only thing that matters is the people around you because all of your mm. other friendship groups in your life just fade away in comparison to how those... can anyone identify with that kind of experience no one you the exactly so the only people that can are those who are doing it with you and they become the only force in your life that you actually care about and they and of course then the institution itself plays off that and then plays off all those that came before especially all those that died who were there before you and you have these pomp and ceremony celebrations that just bring such extraordinary sense of emotion and pride inside you that you that show you are the latest version of this thing going forwards it's extraordinary extraordinarily powerful these structures seem incredibly sorry to interrupt you these structures seem incredibly real in that they elicit something that seems very deeply primal to jump forward just a moment, what corollary did you find between your experiences as members of a military tribe, experiencing rites of passage, com- camaraderie, shared purpose, survival under extreme conditions, and then when you encountered indigenous tribes? What did you was were there echoes of your former experience? Absolutely, um, and you know we're, we're no doubt going to get onto my tribal experiences in a minute but like that I, I do separate them into two quite distinct groups actually the sort of like the majority of the groups that i've lived with all had hierarchy and um all had um aggression pretty much and stress within their society there's one or two groups out there that don't exhibit that and we can love to talk about them later but when but the majority of the tribes that i lived with were existing in a paradigm similar to us which was hierarchical and where there was leadership and often competition for resources and these sorts of things mm. and so in those spaces yeah i've 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 lived with the young bucks who are the warrior class of that group who will be out to try and raid the cattle off the next group and with all the narratives of how they're different and how they need to be killed and all of the things that we see in the meta narrative of our society and yeah, I've been with them and had the, the the elders of their group berating them for not being strong enough and for not, you know, and you're seeing these young guys getting frothing at the mouth with the fact that they're being put down and wanting to go out and fight. And I've been in the center of that and going, wow, I mean, I, this is something that's being repeated throughout the world in so many different ways, shapes and forms. And, and it's all comp- competition for resources. And I was part of that too, you know. I re- I. I look back at my life and, you know, at the time you think you're there saving life, but you're not saving life. You're saving a way of life or preserving, let's say, a way of life. That's what we're doing. We're not out there necessarily because everyone's trying to get us. We're out there because we're still trying to get the stuff to make our lives the way they are now. And that's quite a dark thing to to really sit with. In a sense, empire is merely the cultivation and uh, extrapolation and sort of mastery of these primal impulses. When when I think even as an outsider who knows very little about military practices, when I think about ideas such as rank, ritual, ceremony, and the stuff that you mentioned around pomp, ancestor worship, all of these ideas are harnessing natural energies traits and tendencies that you see exhibited in far less um i'll say advanced for the sake of simplicity advanced cultures Mm. that you've yeah but but i have i'm i'm often like i suck my teeth a little bit when i when i hear primal and um natural 
type words because of course right. because of course they are within us and this is what Jordan Peterson talks about you know he goes all the way back to the lobster and says like ergo there's always been competition but the reality is is that oh I say the reality I have to be careful it's like my belief and I think it's increasingly well established and acknowledged now within the um, academic realm the anthropological realm is that actually the vast majority of our time on the planet as a species as homo sapiens we had created tools that minimize those drives so successfully that they were almost invisible and there are still even today indigenous groups that are egalitarian in space that have almost no competition there's one group in asia that has almost no violence so much so that they see any form of violence at all as a type of mental illness it's so rare and groups that I've lived with as well who are who have been seen to have so little violence and they're conflict adverse that they come out in these tests that anthropologists do like miles ahead of any other type of society and have done in all of these different tests that they've been studying for decades now. But we're only just rediscovering this, you know, because, of course, most people go out and visit a tribe like I did and go, here's a tribe in Africa or here's a tribe in, in the Arctic or whatever. And they have many of the traits just like us. Ergo, it's always, it's ever been thus. But actually, that the reason that we're having that is because we're looking at these groups and thinking they, this is how they've been forever. But actually, nearly every group that you see, and this is the big learning I had. You know, I went, I, I did, in the tribe series, I lived with 15 different tribes. And it was only the last group that I lived with that I suddenly woke up and go, this, this, these people are totally different. Every other group that I live with Although there was many beautiful aspects of their life that I, 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 I could learn from, you know, connection to nature and spirituality and community life and the way they bring up their kids and all these things that we can learn from tribal people, beautiful, beautiful, deep stuff. But at the same time, beneath the surface, they had the similar stresses and strains that we have to do with hierarchy and competition and difficulties within their society. And then I lived with this last group the Penan in Borneo and it was like there was, there was something completely different about them and it took me a long time to figure out what it was but that was what it was here was a group that were exhibiting a totally different paradigm that they were swimming in almost it was like they had no competition and no hierarchy and and then I've since realized and found anthropologists that back this up that actually that's how it was for all of us before the Neolithic revolution and that's the thing that I'm now out trying to talk about more because it's like this is a bit of our narrative that no one's that no one's even aware of, at least not in the high street. So civilization almost is a warping of perspective at its essence, conveying to us and perhaps inculcating us to believe that there is a way, a particular way that that human beings are m supposed to live, meant to live. And you're saying that we have extracted from our narrative a period that was built on consensus, non-aggression, non-competition. What is this Neolithic revolution? The agricultural revolution. The agricultural re revolution. So with the advent of agriculture around 10,000 years ago, suddenly hierarchies change. It's, it, agriculture benefits elites, but perhaps does not benefit it probably, masses. It probably came about through um, accumulation, surplus, and getting through the drought, getting through the... As we left the tropical belt of abundant resources, equal access to abundant resources, which obviously favoured certain types of society. Um, 
like the difference between the bonobos and the chimps they're either side of the the congo river it's like one has much more spread out resources than the other you know so it could well be that this just evolved in a different way as a result of the chimps having much more um centralized food sources which meant that it was easier for them to have these power struggles where if it's all spread out it's it's much harder for any strong man to like hold on to it and so it could be in some ways that these this domination is a luxury in this well yeah I, mean, I hadn't thought of it in those terms but um you know i i think i think that those tendencies are within us you know and and when i spoke to the anthropologists who've lived with these egalitarian societies for a long time i said so is this our innate state and he goes no 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 bruce this is requires incredible work at all levels at all times but but when everyone understands the narrative and everyone is fully empowered themselves then that that work is just it's just their daily bread they stop anyone getting out of hand how through these different tools well the main tools is the narrative and everyone like a myth we like, are these yeah, people like this money is a narrative religion's a narrative nationalism's a narrative these are all things that we get behind to that allow us to operate with vast numbers of people because we all believe in the same thing and i think that um that, that that's the main thing is that they all know that the society's better off without anyone getting higher or lower so if someone gets too much they have these tools to bring them down and if someone gets too low then they'll bring them up and what like some sort of judicial structures no 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 were. because again that would be going back to some centralized form of power so it's done wow. individually they're anarchists so they're fully yeah fully and again so the anarchists on the planet are the most peaceful people on the planet i mean i just love saying that Right, yeah, anarchists get bad press. You imagine someone sort of smashing throwing up a TV a phone out box. the window. Yeah, well, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> yeah. When in fact they say, right, we're considering throwing this TV <laughs> out of the window. But uh, Gene, what do you think? Is that a good idea? Well, actually, no. Thank you for asking, Gene. Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't be throwing that TV. <laughs> so, like, I was so I was with I was with a group of people uh, called the Benjeli in Africa, and um, I was with the anthropologist Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, who feature in the film I made, and. Uh, and I, so I was with these guys, and there was this, um, there was, and the, and the and the men in the group pointed to another guy the other side of the village, say, "See that guy there? He's the best hunter. We know he's the best hunter. He we hunt elephant. He's got a big wooden stake. He runs out first, and he sticks it in the belly. We come in afterwards the spears and stuff. But like he's the man. But a couple of years ago, he started showing off that he was the man. So of course we had to f- stop going hunting with him, and the women refused to cook his food because we just can't be allowing." that we know we're different everyone's different so he, we we accept that he is the leader in that sense momentarily and we see that and we know that he has this great capacity but he doesn't get any more credit or value for that it's just that's his bit and then other times people will have their own moment when they can shine but they but no one you're not allowed to show off you're not allowed to accumulate more you're not allowed to get any more you're not allowed to any of that and then also the female section of the group probably aren't choosing for that either so they're not trying to choose the competitive winners like we are in our well, that's amazing because that is one of the things we are told is innate that the uh, evolution favors these traits it's interesting that it's even possible to prohibit the fetishization of certain roles that that a culture or a tribe is capable of saying it is good the way you stab that elephant but we value other stuff as well don't get carried away with it because when I think about how much in my own life I've 
sort of self-worshipped, fetishized, like, oh, I can do this, I'm good at this, like, you know, but I'm aware and have been taught well enough now to recognise, oh, how lucky you are that you live in a culture that values, firstly, you know, your sort of socioeconomic status, your gender, sex status, your racial status, comedy, luckily, is a thing that people are willing to pay money for, yeah. you know, like it's... And and of course, our our civilization is, in a sense, like you again described with the military, a series of these hierarchies and these lenses that favour and continually bias towards certain traits and value. In, in like using your um, elephant anecdote and indeed experience, you couldn't have nurses are paid this, but <laughs> the financial wizards are paid this, and Jeff Bezos earns that. You know, it'd be like, well, Jeff, it's great the way you run Amazon, <laughs> but calm yourself down. So many things when you start looking at the world through that prism fall away. You know, like the powerful, like the older man getting the younger girl, and all of that as well. It's like why? Because he's powerful in our society because he has accumulated, or because he has. And again, all of these things just start dissipating when. Everyone has shared ownership. Everyone has, everyone is seen as different and unique, but no one is more than. And that, that. I mean, that's beautiful and brilliant, and it makes sense to me. And I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine, Jeff Krasner, who runs the Commune, a website that does lots of courses on well-being. Who you would, I think, benefit from meeting. He said, um, just because we're utopian we don't have to give up our cynicism we can still be circumspect and still consider things sort of carefully even if we've got a high ideal like an egalitarian beautiful society now but for example you you cited jordan peterson who i've met a couple of times and actually found to be a very lovely man as a matter of fact but and but the example like the lobster example which is essentially underwriting hierarchies and power struggles through biology even in the, the example you cited of the older male with the younger female the way that i suppose that would be biologically underwritten is well you know men remain fertile into their 70s women go through a menopause much earlier than that men have an imperative to pursue certain mating strategies and women have an imperative to be more selective with their mates than males yeah. you know so I suppose what the, those biological arguments are often used to do is to declare certain things natural and therefore, I suppose, right and, 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 and unchallengeable. But you're saying there are examples of societies where there are different values where it's possible to go, well, even though this dude's good at killing elephants, we're not going to let him like nick all the food or beat other people up or have sex with everyone. You know, totally. It's possible. And I think to- that, yeah, I mean, I think that's that is it in a nutshell it's like we definitely have drives and we can definitely look at our physiology and we can say that it would make sense that men would act in this way as a result of them having millions of sperm and women having one selective eggs and the ergo that is just within us and of course that is within us but we are social beings and we we have different forces at play in how we decide to create society and if we all just act purely out of those then certain type of behavior might arise and what they've decided upon and i think for the vast majority of our time this is probably how it was is that that didn't serve them the best yeah right i wonder what happened i wonder when they realized hey it's not cool to have someone well, and do they have literal stories that go well so i mean it, it, the the plot thickens it's like i mean it's so fascinating this is by far the most interesting thing that i've ever discovered in all of my journeys so i i, I basically and i have to give credit to the anthropologists that really sh- uh, um enlightened me about this there's uh, jerome and ingrid lewis in particular and um 
Chris Knight and Camilla Power from the Radical Anthropology Group, who have meetings in London quite often, and um, and they the, their work is phenomenal. And um, and so Jerome and Ingrid Lewis took me to a group that they've been studying now for decades um, called the Benjeli people in the Congo, and and so this is like one of the the the, the oldest like most let's say um, unbroken lineages of of humans on the planet if we did come from Southern Africa and all the rest of it. And uh, so here's a group of people that, that could potentially give us an insight into really old stories, really old myths. And it just so happens that they have a particular narrative myth that is reenacted through song and dance that they say is their uh, earliest story of how humans became human and how they created society. And, and I was able to... Pu- to be a part of this and watch this and and sort of go behind the scenes and be with the men for this and um and what basically in a nutshell what 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 it seems that's happening um, and they don't say explicitly like this but they their 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 words kind of don't definitely don't negate this this uh this idea is what it is is a reenactment of the moment when the women said no to the alpha male and invited the other men to come in and live with them in society provided that they let go out the door their competitive aggressive ways and came and lived alongside them in in a in a society of equals and that is a reenactment that you still see with this basically this phallic spirit of the forest that comes out and is spinning around and is and 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 the men come in and basically keep this thing away from the women and the women are like this is the spirit by which we were once pregnant but now the men are protecting us from that and it's banished back out into the forest and we're all now living in harmony and i mean it's kind of quite interesting That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty powerful isn't it so it's like there's a force of dominance and domination that subjugated the feminine principle but the males when bonded can create an equal fair society that is not determined on the base. I mean, it's a pretty sort of complex, but also, uh, I don't know, primal. Again, I noticed that these words have got some interesting baggage, but it seems, um, I don't know, pure, elemental. Well, what, you know, the theories around that, because, of course, you ask, why would they want to do that? What happened? Well, I mean, if you go back long enough, what is different about Homo sapiens? Of course, we stood up, right hips narrowed, you give birth to a very helpless offspring. Maybe they needed a hand and maybe what worked for them previously, having the best genes from the guy who was fighting off everyone else, suddenly wasn't enough. Maybe they wanted some help and he wasn't doing it. And maybe this also, I mean, there's theories around this that I, that I find fascinating as to why, what might have evolutionarily happened to us as a species in order for this moment of sex strike to to come about this moment sex strike so yeah i threw that in too early probably <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm gonna let a phrase like sex strike just pass bruce without yeah, inquiry I threw, I threw that in too early you're gonna forgive me we'll, which will be promised to, down. We promise, come back promise to, to come to that one um yeah so like so the theories around this um are so let's say why would it that, that why would the women wanted to invite the men in whereas previously you look at other um great apes that they work very well with a harem hierarchical very aggressive alpha male type society that that works for them fine why would we want to do it differently and so one of the theories that i find compelling is that maybe the women needed a hand um and that the alpha male preening himself just having scraps every day there wasn't enough and they wanted the help but they couldn't invite the other guys in because it just that 
and and also if they were trying to say no to the alpha male of course they would just get overpowered and probably raped which also happens in other species uh, in other um, apes so maybe some of the things that are interesting about humankind like the fact that we don't show when we're an ostracist and the fact and the more important that mean ostracist? so like when we're coming into season with others there's swellings and there's all sorts whereas we don't necessarily show it so clearly i mean it is it is possible to tell but it's not very visible but the most interesting one is the synchronization so when we sync, when women synchronize when they're together, perhaps that was another tool that allowed them to say no collectively. Oh, wow, that's isn't cool. that interesting? I mean, it's a theory. I mean, obviously, no one knows if that's a reality or not, but it is a curious thing, and I found that to be compelling. And if you mix all of those things together, you come up with this potential idea that actually we evolved in order to be able to live together in this way. And I find that like does something to me because then you can talk about n nature and natural. It's like, yeah, we actually evolved to be able to go through this process so that the men could come in. And, and of course, we all have these tendencies within us, but it felt like the pact that was made was like, yeah, come in, but you've got, you're going to be held accountable to not behaving like that anymore. Yeah, and yeah. this is the other thing that you see um, with these groups and this is the, this I actually had this we, we filmed this and I ended up taking it out of my film because I got quite scared of some of the stuff that I was talking about because I wasn't necessarily able to hold it as as wisely as I would have liked because ultimately what what one of the other main tools that they had for maintaining balance was this play between the men and the women who were mostly embodying a relatively binary um sense of masculine and feminine within each group and so the mask so the men would be working in a certain way and then the women would be working in a different way and that that play between the men and the women was the one of the main tools that maintained balance within their society um, why was that problematic for you well, because, of course, we're entering into a realm now where we don't like binary views of sex and gender. And uh, and and it's a, it was a new area for me to try and get my head around. I definitely didn't feel like I wanted to come in and interrupt which fit anything that feels like a more liberal way of accepting and believing and loving everyone in their different capacity for being. And yet this meth this sort of message that I had discovered and what I had um, learnt with this group had a very different this um, is the Ben Jellies in ben particular. Jelly, yeah, yeah. Spelled M B E N G J E L E or something. Um, so, yeah. So. Are you saying that within that tribe, even though there was a sort of a strong sense of egalitarianism and a rejection of hierarchies, there was still a kind of bifurcation between the sexes? Yeah, and uh, this is the other thing that I've often, I've sort of realized that we get confused between equality and sameness. Yeah. But, and, like, you know, th that's, that's, more apparent now and people are saying that now but for a long time equality just meant we have to be the same as each other and that what these groups have is like no they fully accept difference and there's difference between you and me there's difference between everyone like the hunter we know he's we know he's we're not trying to deny he's the best hunter we're just not giving him any more credit or status and so that's what equality is is that no one is more than even though they're different and likewise individuals are different but also men and women are seen as very different and they do have different roles and they are and they um and they have pr probably different qualities of power that they are using within their society but what's interesting is that the women are pr i mean like 
they are so powerful. I I would even argue that they might be the most powerful, um, but they're not foolish enough to hold on to that power. And so they relinquish it and allow the men in because if they were to hold on to it, then that would just be a matriarchy and that's another form of hierarchy and it would all resent when all the troubles would come. So each group takes takes over for a moment and then rescinds and allows the other in. And it's that play is the play. But when the women come in, for example... And again, I was witness to this. It was super interesting and powerful. It was like their quality of power that they use to sort of like rebalance the masculine is not using competition or aggression or any of the forces that the, the masculine might be holding, but to come in with teasing and laughter and joking, song, dance and sex and the threat of no sex and... Um, and holding people to account and, and like pointing out if someone's been a lazy lover or pointing out if someone's been aggressive in the home or something. So it's a bit of a like collective naming and shaming. When but does that happen? This happens in the village, you know. What, so it's like, their assembly. Yeah, so they kind. will come in, the women come in en masse. And I've got video of this, so I'll show you. Uh, and then, and with all you know, young, young girls. How many and, people all, in this group? Well, I mean, this, the, the interesting thing about this is like, so I remember saying to Jerome, um, yeah, so I can understand everything you're telling me about this group, but surely this is their tools that they're using, but they must be in competition with the people on the other side of the valley. And he goes, no, Bruce, you still don't get this, do you? He's like, this, is a, this is a nomadic hunter-gatherer group. So like what you're seeing now, if you come back in six months' time, not only will they not be here, it also will be a completely different group of people because like some will have left and gone somewhere else and others will have come in. This is an ever ever sort of stretching out overlapping way of being that still has a hundred thousand people today in the congo living that way and so this is not about tribalism this is pre-tribalism this is like a way of being that spread out through probably the whole of the tropical belt if it's in a continue i mean i suppose all societies are amorphous by virtue of the fact that we're all living and dying and being born and migrating and leaving and coming and going how do they maintain that central myth and that through those songs, those rites and rituals are acted out like, you know, it's, so, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because you would think like, how do they do it? Do they have to relearn that every generation? But they obviously don't. Yeah. So it's just the power in of the same, narrative. We may as well say, how do we do it in it? Because like yeah. in a hundred years, everyone that's alive now is going to be dead. And yet, unless there's radical change, we're so, still going to go, these people earn more than these people. Just, Those people should never bones. do. It's yeah. just in their bones. They just know it. They just know that if power gets centralized, it cannot, it cannot help itself but be corrupt. Mm. And they won't allow anyone to to become more than anyone. So this is before shamanism. This is before the, wow. It's before shamanism. Well, because, like, so even the like, shamans, there's like no a deified yeah. figure. Yeah. Are they having any? Is this particular... and you see how many shamans are corrupted and like and mm. losing their what start out as these beautiful angelic beings end up not being able to cope with all the attention I can transcend to new levels of consciousness hold on something's coming through I should have the best heart and I'm going to be having sex with everyone <laughs> and like, yeah that's interesting so it's pre-shamanic pre-tribal cultures I guess like my um, one of my inquiries mate is that the, the, the fascination is a kind of archaeological search for the universal in these places or a new universal or an alternative you know at a time when thanks our societies feel like it seem to be organized on um you know along unequal lines when there's more and more polarization more and more conflict like 
I've had this sense for a while that our job is in this, uh, inverted commas, advanced, technologically progressive, medically uh, fluent society to reconnect with some organic sense of who we are, that we are now living in a version of captivity, that our impulses are continually corralled, like you said, in your own military days, pride and those male energies were sort of utilised and used to make you a functioning part of a unit and my own maleness was used to make me a sort of a, an, econ- an economic unit a, a, a participant in consumerism and commerce and the, the sort of ce- a cog in the celebrity machine so I suppose what I'm curious about because I feel that what our politics suffers from is a kind of limitation of vision that uh, this is, you know, we can either be this or we can be that. But there was this wonderful thing that I quote quite frequently, given to me by the philosopher Brad Evans, a, a, a Native American. He called himself that activist called Russell Mead. Said like that he said that you, um, the Westerners, seem to think that we should ally, ally ourselves with the Marxist cause. But he goes, but for us, capitalism and communism are just different sides of the same coin. Both presume that the Earth should be regarded as a resource. Both assume that we should be that our role here is to toil and work and perform economic roles and at this point when you know when it's like our nature with work is likely to change without when our relationship with nationalism and globalism is changing faster than we can contend with when our relationship with tribe is becoming very difficult to conceive of it, like we, I feel that it will be very valuable to return to us and examine some of these early ideas and see if they would be somehow applicable. And like you know, a word we've already mentioned is anarchism. See how these could be applied in developed societies. And it seems like much of your work is focused on trying to uncover that. I totally agree. I mean, I love the chat you had with Carne Ross. I thought that was a really beautiful talk. You know, here's another institutional being that has seen how defunct and how it wasn't working, and. And I really vibed with that so much. And uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I've been exactly on that journey. It's like, I'm not about toning back the clock. I'm about trying to find out what worked before and how can we bring that into today. And I think that we definitely need to make a lot of changes. But um, I'm not like a technophobe, for example. I think that the internet could be our salvation. I think that we have the capacity now. And it is fascinating, isn't it? Because you think, you think, you know, every philosopher or even religious leader that's ever lived um, who's, who's had an attempt to try and find a way to, um, to offer an insight into how best we can live together. You know, so whether it's Jesus or Confucius or Buddha or Lao Tzu or Copernicus or you know, any one of them, Hobbes and Rousseau, all of them, they all had at least 800 years of civilization before them. And none of them probably were aware of the fact that 90% of our time on the planet, we lived as egalitarians. And they might have had in, insights into tribal people. I know that Rousseau did. But, and, you know, and, but, they, the, but none of them really knew this narrative about what our true ancestry might have been like. And I wonder if they had known that, whether they might have had a different attempt to try and find ways of how we can live together because it seems so out there that anarchy could be the answer. But I think that we are now, it's almost like the, the finger, it's like the Sistine Chapel, it's like the finger of the past touching the today. It's like there's this glorious moment where we have this, as we're facing our own doom, we have this also this capacity for understanding of really what it was like once upon a time. And 
and that this narrative could come in. Um, and I, I don't know in what way, shape or form it might land. But to know that it was our true way of being, that we lived really well like that in a harmonious way with each other and with the planet for the majority of our time on the planet, we weren't facing these problems. So many of the stresses that we have in our society as a result of, of disparity in wealth and the stress that one feels in one body. It's like there's so much evidence that, so, that shows that it's not being poor that there's an indicator of bad health and antisocial behavior disorders and all the rest of it. It's feeling poor. And, that, and you see that in so many areas of the world. It's like it's actually the, the stress of, of feeling less than because of society putting you, pulling you apart in these structural ways. And I think that we have the opportunity to re-implant a new narrative and we also had the technology to bring that about. We could have direct democracy where everyone is fully involved in every decision, dissolve fucking parliament and just all use the app and just get on with it, you know, and give it away to your friend if you don't want to do the, the you know, certain part of it. We, we, we can re-empower the individual in a way that we, that, that we probably weren't able to before. Uh, and maybe these these other forms of society work for us very well in order for us to create these extraordinarily wonderful things that we've got. But now we need to bring those tools back into a wisdom of the whole. And we have the ability to do that. But we need yeah. the narrative to go with it. It's like that the competitive spirit is a little bit like the guy with the uh, big spear down in the elephant. It's like for that moment, that mentality as embodied by that individual did the job of felling the elephant. It seems perhaps that with an argument could be made that this period of competitiveness regarded by some faiths as a period of darkness was what was required to conquer the material world to form a kind of mastery over nature but now we have pursued that idea to an apocalyptic degree and it might be time for this sort of um mentality that we could consider almost to be like a sort of an embodied male competitive aggressive energy to step aside and to move into a new uh, collaborative more equal uh, era but my question to you bruce and god i mean we're moving beyond your incredible experiences as a as a documentarian living with tribes and your personal experiences as a man that's been in the military and the experiences you've had with shamanism and plant medicine which i guess we'll leap into in a moment and the idea that that might be a way of accessing some sort of universal pre-agricultural consciousness and being indeed as you have said that finger reaching from the past to the present i wonder if institutions and ideas such as nation and the kind of <clears throat> hierarchies that have been endowed by civilization in themselves need to be discarded or is there a way of repopulating them with new ideas put simply is can a, a concept such as the united kingdom a concept such as capitalism survive these ideas or are these institutions and uh, notions that we're going to have to put aside um I, d- I don't think that power ever beget ever sort of like willingly lets go of its of its power. I don't think I don't think the alpha male happily stood down. I think they had something had to happen, and I think that's what what we're facing with today. It's like so much centralized power, but it's out of control, um, and it's not just going to relinquish it. So what we again have to look at is like how wh- how did how did that happen before? How did we get maybe the only time in history 
we've had a true revolution that went from apex hierarchy into egalitarianism. And if you look at any other type times when we've had revolutions, they've generally always replaced like with like. I mean, even the Bolshevik revolution had all of these beautiful elements to it, but it just ended up with a Politburo, a central power who were just doing the same again, you know? And like, so communism was just, as you said, two sides of the same coin. I mean, not only in its consumption and its disregard for, for the environment, but also in the fact that it was centralized power. And everything goes, yeah, we're giving from our hearts to this, but like they looked after themselves and centralized power can't help but be corrupted. And that's what the tribes knew. Don't let it get centralized. Everyone is individually empowered and then we work it out together that way. And I think even XR have got this quite interesting thing going on. I mean, love them or hate them, and there's lots of complications. But that sort of idea of decentralized power is at the heart of what they're saying. And obviously, decentralization is a buzzword around the world today. But what you have in like Silicon Valley is talk of decentralization, except that will allow a few individuals to get incredibly rich. But so they're missing some of the narrative that the early tribes had. It's like, yeah, we're going to disseminate power and allow everyone to be empowered. But like that also includes wealth and accumulation, too. And so my my sort of my um, response in that in that sense is like, what can we learn from how that early revolution went about in order for us to look at things like you you mentioned the nationalism and the central bodies of power what what can we learn from them and 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 i i see it also when i'm when i was with the men and the women in that group it's like the women knew that if they challenged the power that the men had which was the sort of hierarchical competitive aggressive power not always they loved them it was mm. coming from a loving place. It mm. wasn't like toxic masculinity. It's like, we love you guys, but just don't fucking get out of control. So we're going to come and tease you and bring you back down a bit. So what they were doing was they knew that they shouldn't challenge that force using the same quality of force. Because that, yes. that doesn't work. So they had to find a different way. And what their, what their quality was, was laughter and joking and play, um, like the jester of old. But also, and I think the most powerful one was this, underlying threat of the sex strike mm -hmm. and it's like what we know what it is that's actually driving everything you're doing anyway <laughs> right we know what you want we know what you now want calm down and so and and you could even say that that hasn't necessarily gone away it's like why are people trying to build these massive towers and block, you know what, what's that about you know is it that the driving force of nearly all of it hasn't changed that much anyway and really what's needed is something that understands how do we how do we remove something that is the driving force of what that power base is yes and whether that's a female sex strike global sex strike or whether that is something else where we just don't buy into the corporations we just don't you know we just remove the energy source that is allowing them to be that power base and so that vibing in that area is kind of where i'm Trying to. I like it, man. Uh, there's a few things. One is that um, when you were saying that thing about the sort of feminine rebuttal to male domination had a teasing, playful energy to it, it reminds me of a Vedic or a story from the Bhagavad Gita, I presume it was told to me by uh, Radhanath Swami. Uh, a fella, a pretty high priest that's coming here. Fella doesn't seem quite. <laughs> <laughs> this geezer I know. <laughs> um, like, In robes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, robe shaved, shaved head, the whole shebang. He told me that um, 
there's a beautiful there's a beautiful story where the village lake is being the water source for the whole village is being polluted by this dominating serpent creature that keeps all his wives under the water and is releasing all of his toxicity and into the waters and Krishna even though he is a baby in one of the origin stories of Krishna dance like uh, he goes down to fight this great terrifying serpent that lives under the water under the conscious line like and Krishna goes and confronts the beast um, but plays a sort of song on his little flute and stuff nice. and dances on the heads the serpent has many heads seven heads possibly greed lust this sure, yeah, yeah. and he dances on the heads of the serpent and subdues it and eventually this serpent becomes like but he said like that he was very mindful to tell me Radhanath Swami when he told me the story that when Krishna's dying he's not like yeah I'll fuck you up <laughs> he's, like, he's like he's dancing like woohoo like playing yeah, and it's very yeah, merry yeah, yeah. and light and joyful and ultimately subdues in this these negative energies and thus things become whole and the wives are grateful and they um, they beg Krishna for mercy before the creature dies and everything becomes you know he becomes one of Krishna's loyal servants now if we consider Krishna to be the sovereign the awakened being is a similar mythic figure to Christ and the energies the serpent limbic system ancient brain energies that create toxicity in the fluidity and flow and source of energy that all of us require to live harmoniously then it's clear that these myths are teaching us something that there's a different energy within us there's a different frequency that's trying to realize itself and it seems to me bruce from what you're saying that from agriculture onwards we have favored external modalities that continually um harness aspects of our nature that are not beneficial to the majority of people but um help to calcify an elite at the top of these structures totally and you know another thing that i i haven't talked about but i think is also indicative of that shift that happened to us all in my film that i made is much more about this to why it's a new film at the yeah, moment so it's called to why a voice from the forest i've spent like seven years when i left the bbc um i went off and made this film and it came out a couple so of years did you ago. think your film tribe which most people will know you for where you live with did you say 15 different tribes yeah and then after that, you stopped making stuff for the BBC. No, no, after that, then I did a trip down the Amazon oh, yeah. um, looking at globalisation. Then I did a trip around the Arctic looking at climate change. When did you do all them drugs in the woods and being a happy that was uh, That was whenever I could. <laughs> <laughs> whenever the cameras are off. Yeah, you're the guy that gets naked and does drugs. Aren't you? That's, <laughs> that's me, that's my job, yeah, <laughs> naked drug guy. But the so um, one of the things that I, I, I'd like to get onto drugs with you because I'd, I'd love to have that chat uh, and what they've done for me, not drugs, but like plant medicines, as I call them. Um, but uh, no, the, one of the things that we did talk about in the film is this other moment of that shift between hunter gathering and agriculture is, of course, hunting and gathering as a daily meditation. In order to catch the monkey, you have to be in your body, in your senses, alert fully here present now in order to be able to get your food and if you're drifting off in your mind with that abstract thoughts times and place you just step on the twig and you won't get it you have to be fully practiced in being embodied in present in order to be able to hunt and likewise when you're foraging you have to to be alert to where nature's where things are growing you can't just like walk the dog whistle and fucking headphones on look at the horizon like we you have to be present and, and aware and, and noticing and feeling and using your senses where your feet are touching and all of this stuff is was a daily meditation that I think that basically um, balanced the hemispheres I'm quite into we, we talk quite a lot about the hemispheres in the film um, and and the ways that they perceive the world differently 
hemispheres as of in the like brain. the right and left hemispheres of the brain yeah um and the, that that they were much more balanced perhaps back then and allowing us to have a especially when you're much more in the body a more empathic connection to that which is around you and i think that was um that was probably their daily bread in that they felt more deeply and that they were feeling connected and and empathy was a much bigger part of their lives and i think that as we've drifted out of that i mean you can be an empathic focused uh like present farmer but you don't have to be you know you don't have to be you can actually drive the tractor and just fucking whistle around and put things in a row is it any surprise that we suddenly saw ourselves as more powerful than nature because we are now controlling it and all of those things came in as well around that time of control separation because one of the things that um that probably comes about when you have that slight shift in consciousness is you see yourself more linear mindset more separate and and that was another thing that potentially happened through that moment. And that's why, of course, spiritual practices have come about in order for us to try and reconnect with a way of being that we probably always had. Um, and well, and that's why we feel so extraordinary when we get this sense of unity consciousness or whatever it is. It's like, wow, that's something that I'm not having in my daily life. But I think that when those guys went hunting, they were probably experiencing that. I live with one tribe who do feature in the film um, called the Piraha and... Uh, and they have no future or past tense to their language. They're so present. They couldn't even abstract out with a fucking present moment if they wanted to because their voice can't even take them outside of the fucking oh present God. moment. I mean, imagine. What does that do to communication? Well, I mean, they are able to, but there's just so little in their life that is, is rele- relevant outside of the experience of you and me talking now. Like, so they've never, been, they've never had a missionary um, ever convert any of them because they're only interested in like what we uh, uh, our own relative experiences and like yeah we can still talk about what it's like you know we'll i'll meet you tomorrow by the river but there's not there's there's yeah, so little it's functional there's, but there's but if they so they do have a future and a past they just funny. don't have a language that has been created to allow that to to be expressed so if, if a missionary turns up and says there was this guy called jesus <laughs> uh, oh yeah it's like so <laughs> where is he now yeah so have you have you met him it's like no well has your dad met him no has your granddad met him well, where is he from well, i so don't have, see how he's gonna help have you been to have you been to where he's from they're just not interested and and yet they have this really interesting direct connection with voices that um that they say come from the forest and you know i've i've obviously spent a lot of time with indigenous groups who are able to connect to the divine through various thank you through various practices whether it's drumming or medicine or or song or chanting or dance but this was the first group i'd ever lived with who literally are being guided by a force that they say comes to them into their heart and then they experience it as words and that this guy's there every day isn't that crazy yeah it's pretty crazy that mate because a lot of the spiritual stuff i've been taught lately is about stop thinking (laughs) you know like it's we've it's like a disease it's like the inner counterpoint of our materialism the ongoing narrativization of every day and inability to live the life that you described those folk of living of like well i'm just here now doing this like i'm always oh god what does it mean if i do that oh, i didn't do that as well as he did that oh god <laughs> i'm probably gonna step on those twigs if that monkey gets away it's gonna be my fault you know like i'm always projecting into the future 
remembering the past, dogged by these illusory and conceptual diseases of mind that prevent me from totally. being in the present. And it can only be, I watch actually, I've got very, I've got young children, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I sort of recognised quite early how often we sort of, in, like they're always happy where they are. They never want to leave anywhere. That's the, you know, like, come on, we've got to go now. No, I want to stay here. And like, you have to go, when we get there, I'll give you an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you're always sort of trying to embed them in these conceptualized futures and pasts. That's so beautiful. To, you know, I recognize, oh, I'm teaching them to yeah. live, in, like, to get out of the moment. I mean, so much of it is coming from our childhood, you know, it's like it's ownership um and yeah the, and you know it's so much of it and also the wounding that we get as as you know for growing up is like um is coming from our childhood it's very hard and that's another thing that the that um often a tribe will have is that they have less borders and boundaries so if the, if the family unit is having a difficult time the kids just go next door so a lot of those things that should happen that don't or shouldn't happen that do just get disseminated amongst the group and it's a much more wholesome way as a person quite new to family life living now with my wife and my two daughters i do feel like that there is sometimes it's like that there would be the benefit of it being a group but i've taken to heart so i think perhaps some of my zeal for uh, personal revolution comes from the fact that my tendency is I am competitive I do care what other people think if there are other males around I can't bear the idea that I'm going to be dominated or subjugated by any of these mates like it makes me freak out but why do you feel that you would be dominated if everyone else had that it's like I remember again with this uh, Af- African group we were dancing. I was running around with the guys, and it's all flexing muscles, and we were all like a big Are you naked in big this story. Ru- I wasn't actually no, but like, but nearly. And so, like, lots of um, like a rugby scrum running, running around. And someone we're playing this, as well. We were, we were like, I don't know what we were doing, but we were making some funny, grumpy, some grunting noises and just charging up and down the village, just kind of ex- <laughs> just just like um showing our presence i guess but anyway someone threw out this big long stick into the middle of us and half of us got one side and half got the other side and i'm like cool we're gonna have a comp you know we're gonna have a tug of war that's what that's what guys do when you're instantly placed in two two groups and we'll just you know see who see who who wins you know that would have been my instant understanding and i think probably most groups that i've been with that would have probably come to something like that but here with this group we pushed and we pulled and we flexed our muscles and we lifted it in the air and we had this most amazing time. But at no time ever did I feel anyone was trying to show anyone else up. It was a brotherhood and it was beautiful. And it was in those moments that I had such a deep softening of the heart. It's yeah, like, I feel it even explaining it. It's like, fuck, it could be like that. It's like, wow, everyone is actually out for each other. It's... <laughs> Phenomenal. makes me feel like in a sense the, the where i have to conquer it mostly is in myself you know my own tendency for dominion and domination if i can just like let go of that then i, I might feel more comfortable in forming relationships where that isn't a component mm-hmm. because i'm i'm not vibrating on that level i think absolutely mate it's like you know um we we've got a lot of healing to do you know it's like we we are all acting out in these really traumatic ways often and either protecting wounds or or defending ourselves from from things that happened when we were younger and as well as all the current stuff that's going on in our lives the stresses but you know i think that they are probably less traumatized 
What were your experience of uh, rites of passage and wounding with these tribes? You know, it, it, it does can physical wounding replace this sense of psychological wounding, incompletion, and and an unadulted mm. you know, males and yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't ever have thought of like one wounding replacing another. I, I definitely have had deep healings, um, and and so rite of passage is one thing which was um, doesn't which it I, commonly involve wounding. Yeah, and I I. I Rite of passage for me was just a transition of, of, of time from boyhood to adulthood. Um, and it was, I've generally only done it with the men, so I can only really comment on that. And what I noticed, which was actually similar to my own experience of being a Marine, interestingly, even though I wouldn't recommend joining the forces as a form of rite of passage, I, you know, I've come back to, to, to respecting all that and have a very, you know, very different view of it um these days but like uh i do remember when i finally got my green beret in the marines and then so you i've just done a 30 mile march across dartmoor in seven hours and and someone gives you your green beret so i'm a commando i remember like a wind passing through me it really genuinely felt like a spiritual experience a wind passing through me and something leaving my body and i can all I can say is prior to that, I was full of male angst, like needing to prove myself to the world. Yeah. If ever I'd been stopped in the street and some someone tried to fucking mug me or headbutt me or something, I would have like stood there and fought. I was like a little antsy guy. And from that moment of having got my green, never had an experience like that. I've never, ever felt compelled in any way to be aggressive since that moment. Oh, cool. So in some ways... I had a rite of passage, physically at least. It wasn't a spiritual or, or emotional rite of passage, but it was, a, it was a physical one. And what that was for me was like me having attained something that meant that I felt that I was a man and that I mm. had achieved something worthwhile and that the whole of society understood it. That's the other thing about rite of passage. You can go away and do a sweat lodge on a hill, but you can come back and nothing's changed because no one else knows what you've been through. Whereas if you do a rite of passage with a tribe, the whole community's there. They've seen you, they watch you go through this difficult thing. Isn't and that's what, that's what enables the person to be able to go through his change. Have you ever heard of Rupert Sheldrake's yeah, of theories no, I, of morphic I know, resonance? I know Rupert, yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. And like, it sort of seems like that, that there is a magnetic field that is not a concept or construct that we are kind of somehow distantly aware of, i.e. the fact that you've had that sort of spiritual transitional moment in the obvious construct of the marines the construct of the green beret symbolically means manhood masculinity achievement and yet the feeling you have is sort of transcendent visceral absolutely real and and uh, like even in my hobby of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, a very high, like a sort of hierarchical society through the belt, ritualized through the way that the warm-ups happen, that involves sort of co controlled combat and submission and like often hits my ego pretty hard. It feels like what's being... Uh, referenced is a resource that I have in me that's waiting to realise itself. When I got a bluebell, which is what I am in it, it felt like such a significant thing that for the first time in my life I'd done something that was physical because I didn't do sports school. You know, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up around. I, you know, my dad was in my life and is in my life, of course. But like, I didn't have a male influence going right. This is what we do, and this is how you handle it. I felt very abstracted from that, and I really 
probably only really discovered my maleness through sexuality. That's when I started to feel like, oh, right, I've got a body that I can use wow, and that makes wow. me feel good. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like 16, you know, it's sort of, you know, I, I, it's interesting how absent from our cultures these ideas are when they seem so integral and we've replaced them by with external ideas with commodity with commodity in all cases you know when, when we're hankering after some new pair of trainers at 15 16 we're trying through consumerism to synthesize this idea of achievement of meaning of being marked of being accepted it's uh you know when I hear sometimes in Vedic uh, ideology that this is an age of darkness, that is how I understand it. We were too, we are too concerned with the gross. We don't see the light. We don't see the true light of being. We've got embedded only in matter. We're not aware of the invisible systems that can guide us, that can direct us, that we can through ceremony, ritual, belief, and myth instantiate. When you talk to, when you talk about how these sort of um, pre-tribal cultures are sort of held together by sort of different myths as or narratives, you said as relayed through dance, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, even though we see examples of this, whether it's through football fans or nationalism or the emergence of a, a, a new type of identity politics uh, at the moment in these sort of certainly in online spaces makes me feel like how do we create a new cogent myth that we can use to radicalize and change the way that we or our society because it's not something that you can kind of fabricate eh? it's not like you can all no i mean we are living in a, in a world today of a competition for myths you know it's like there's so many and there have been for a while you know but previously there was a few sort of blunderbuss myths of i don't know capitalism versus communism and, and you know and that seems to have like dissolved and now we're like wondering what the new myth is i mean for me uh knowing that that's how it was does something knowing that this sort of this narrative of individual empowerment being a way that really worked for us does something to me knowing that 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 it's not just a hippie pie in the eye or pie in the sky sort of like a dream it's like no 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 no, 95 percent there's not a small amount 95 percent of our time on the planet it's hard to conceptualize that, isn't it? Because precisely because of our civilized view, yeah. I mean, everything we take is like the last ten thousand years. But, like, but there was like so, Eden is real, I believe. And like, <laughs> I said that too quickly, didn't I? Maybe um, I don't see anything as a to- utopian. I don't see anything as perfect. I think that there's always an un- imperfect fit. There is a cosmic joke about everything, but we had extraordinarily good tools and narratives in our ha- in, in, at our hands that allowed us to maintain relative harmony with each other and the, and the environment for a long period of time. And, and, and also, I, just, I genuinely believe that we would all be happier if we re- restructured this sort of runaway madness we have of like pretending that we're living in a meritocracy and we're clearly <laughs> not. <laughs> and, like, and a meritocracy isn't necessarily the best way. And that... Uh, what they understood was that we're just better off together. And if I look, think of my own times of my life, the times that I've been happiest, they haven't been when I've achieved great status things. It's like when I've been hanging out with my mates, we're all together having an okay time, just relatively as as equals. And and I I think that I think that 
when we really evaluate our lives and we think about the times that we were most happy and all that sort of stuff that it makes sense to us that we're on this we're all on these little gerbil wheels trying to uh, trying to live up to the narratives that we're being fed at the moment with more fame more money more stuff will make you happy and you know this better than anyone that's not the answer there's something else that actually brings about a great contentment and also in this realm of competition hierarchy we will carry on going to war yes and we will have more and more people trying to kill us because we're very successful as a society and we've been fucking them over for a long time wondering why they hate us and we will have um increased problems with the environment because if i want to have what my neighbor has there just isn't enough there isn't enough stuff for the whole world to live like we do so we've got to we've got to figure it out either we've got to re and i'm i'm you know we just got to re we got to figure out which bits of technology we have today are working for us and conserve the whole and which bits we just don't need and and to try and rebalance some of the um some of the luxuries of the rich nations and bring the others up and just make that our make that our dream make that where we find meaning where we can deride our happiness from that external thing rather than um only finding happiness and only sort of like my only meaning in life is my own happiness that just leads to tragedy and that's these are the myths that we're living with at the moment i think so we have to radically reevaluate these myths and these narratives and and i think i think that i think that it's it's possible because we we are also facing at the, for the first time ever a universal problem you know climate change could is something that's beyond nationalism it's something that we're the, the whole world needs to deal with together and it's a and it could be something that brings us brings us together somehow and yeah i know this is all the, relatively uh romantic sort of chat but i i, I can't help but feel that that there's a seed of possibility in there. I keep thinking of this phrase, uh, well, not keep thinking of it, it only came during this conversation, actually, the adjacent transcendent, almost as if we, this idea I've heard before, that we needn't confront these institutions head on, but that we need to begin, cultivate, develop new systems and structures and begin inhabiting them. At some point that will involve saying, ah, we're no longer part of your system. So we're not paying your taxes or your debts. We live here in this I community. I dream of that every day. Well, I think it's possible. I do. Yeah, I do. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm planning to be a part of that myself. It's hard. But if you... Can I be in charge? <laughs> <laughs> you're in. You're in. You're in. Yeah, that, that's what we need. Yeah, I mean, I suppose... I think we need lived examples of this. You know, I've had the great privilege of having lived with groups of people who exhibit these tendencies and, and live that way of life. I feel that a seed has been planted in me that I can talk about these things. I mean, I even put it in my film, but like it just goes over people's heads because it seems so far away. But if you've touched it like I have, you're like... It's fucking real. Do you we demonstrate do that um, utopian golden age period of 90% of our history? Do you demonstrate it for our animation? Do you tell that story in this new film of yours? No. I Basically, the film is more about spirit and more about um, connection to nature and stuff. We, we definitely meet these egalitarian groups and they talk about it, but it's not... It's not I think I can put it across better in a chat with you than I necessarily did in the film. But What's the film called again? It's called Tawai, T-A-W-A-I. T-A-W-A-I. Yeah. Why is it called that? 
because so Tawai, A Voice from the Forest, is the name of the film. Um, Where and, can we watch this film? So it's on. You can get it. Um, you can get it on Vimeo and and YouTube. And uh, watch it for nothing on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a commodity. It's uh, sadly I wasn't able to make an egalitarian. Um, Sadly, you're going to have to pay for it, which is a bit annoying. Not that oh, that's all right. This I'll podcast is a subscription model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I wanted to make it free, but um, sadly, the, the investors and everyone thought I was they weren't quite in line with the egalitarian model at the time. Those maniac <laughs> investors <laughs> wanting a return. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's interesting, isn't it, the way that we have to function? But I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch your film. Yeah, it nice. Man. Absolutely amazing. I'm gonna revisit. But what I'll do is work. I'll send you um, the stuff that we didn't put in, which. That does then you see then the women in Africa coming out and doing their stuff? How do you get on with everyone when you can't speak their language? Because like, because same with you, man. Because like, it's easy. It was just for a charismatic connection through the old eye holes. Being a, yeah, by being a sweet guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how lovely! How lovely that you're doing these explorations and these expeditions. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, Bruce. I mean, I want to talk to you about you know you abstain from sex and drugs and drink. Is that true yeah, currently? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm I, I I did for about three years. How come? Um, because I wanted to I wanted to work with this group of people called the Coggy who live in Colombia who have a really interesting worldview, and they invited me to um, to do it and. I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. I mean, it's a longer story than that, but like, yeah, I I said to them, how how should I best prepare to come and like learn a little bit about how you see the world? Because they have this extraordinary worldview vision. Um, you might have heard of this group. They they some of their some of the, I mean, they're not an egalitarian society. I'm much more into egalitarian, but they're still fascinating. Um, but so they're a civilization of like tens of thousands living in uh, this mountain range in the, in the in Colombia and some of their population become the sort of priest leaders um and and a small group of them um get trained in an incredibly interesting way whereby they're taken as very young infants and kept in the dark for like 9 18 or 27 years like with nothing other than um meditative training and practices and stuff so Holy that shit. so that they are literally able to commune with whatever and come out after the at the age of 18 for example and see a tree for the first time what are they like have you met them people yeah yeah, yeah what's yeah, their yeah. vibe of someone that's been they're, they're just um very curious beings very curious and like so present and so uh aware and 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 their society is phenomenal so I wanted to film with these guys and I said, how, sh- how should I prepare? They said, well, the best way is just give up all your distractions, give up all your addictions and distractions. And I was like, fuck off. And they're like, okay, don't. And then I was like, oh, no, no, maybe I will. <laughs> and so I came back. So what were your addictions and distractions? What well, did I was living in Ibiza at the time. I spent oh 10 God, years living in... Oh my God, you had in... nothing but distractions <laughs> and addictions. I was living in Ibiza. I had 10 years in Ibiza. So I was... Um, having a life of distractions and addiction occasionally doing yoga but basically on drugs basically having a really good time yeah um and i loved it i was having a great time i i didn't ever like hit rock bottom but this saved me from hitting rock bottom probably because i was definitely partying hard um, i mean living out there's very different to the image of most people when they think of ibiza ibiza is like just which bit of ibiza were you living in so i i mean when i moved there i didn't have a i didn't know a single person 
Mm. No one. So I had no idea about the North South divide and stuff. I just bought, I had a little finker in the South, but I had like both my neighbors were old Ibisenk farmers still crofting, still living from the land completely. I used to go and hang out with them. And so like, it's an amazing, it's an amazing Island. I had living there is very different to visiting on holiday. It's a really beautiful, beautiful place to be. I had the most, 10 of the best years of my life for sure. But I was definitely caught up in a realm of celebrating life quite heavily because I'd be off living with a tribe and wherever and then I'd come back for a month and just have guests and have a good time and then I'll be off to Africa and I'd be off to the Arctic and so for me I was always coming back and just having a celebratory life and and enjoying that at its fullest and being celebrated too and all the attention that one gets through that and so and actually I think drugs for me was a way of hiding from the attention it was a quite a good. What were you doing? Loads of MDMA and coke and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Like, like your tone. <laughs> well, drugs, just the drugs are illegal, Bruce, <laughs> and it's for a reason. <laughs> don't know that I'm going to answer that anymore. I, I might have done earlier, Russell. <laughs> I've got no judgments of you that are anything other than highly, highly positive. <laughs> However, I'm going to have to hand this tape over to the Buckinghamshire Constabulary <laughs> and to your former officers in the Royal Marines. Don't, don't. Have you still got that green beret? Because I think they'll be taking it back when they hear about your crazy Habibian lifestyle. Oh my God. Yeah, no, I had a great... No, I actually, after this, I'll tell you a couple of stories. Um, one just came to me. It's quite funny. Uh, no, so I... Um, uh yeah so i was i was celebrating life and then they suggested give all that up and i really wanted to uh and i came back i just started seeing a girl at the time and we hadn't had great sex and i thought well i'll give up after just having sex with her uh and but before i left columbia this is the this is the another weird bit they someone said to me you know they're going to watch you don't you these guys they're connected into the the whole ethereal matrix and like they'll they'll know whether or not you are able and i'm like listen mate that i i don't know if i believe that maybe they'll (laughs) read my body language when i get back and stuff but they're not like watching me from i'm like depicting my ability to to be able to figure this thing out or not by um having this super sense anyway so and they were like and this guy was like well you know if you trans if you transgress then you know it might not work out for you and I'm like, whatever. Anyway, so I came back and uh, ended up having sex. And I literally getting a text straight away going, oh, the f- there's a problem. There's a complication with the film. And I was like, okay, that's just coincidence. Wow. And then like, and then like, uh, and then I took myself off to India to go and meditate and uh, do some ayahuasca in the Himalayas and stuff. And, uh, and then I met up um, with his girlfriend again in India. And, uh, and like had, Indiana Jones or someone. And then had sex again. Um, or didn't, but like pretty much did. And, uh, and then literally... My phone went off again. Uh, it's like instantaneously going right. The film's off, and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, fuck me. So in that moment, I, 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 it was quite a curious moment for me. I was like, okay, it's something shifted inside me. It's like I just suddenly realised that fucking hell, Bruce, you've been living with all these tribes. Even the strap line to your show is like, you know, be one of the tribe or whatever. And you've always maintained your cynical slightly superior scientific view of them the whole way through even though all of these tribes you've lived with have have all these animistic beliefs or whatever it is and you've always gone yeah yeah i kind of we know better (laughs) and and i thought fuck here's this extraordinary group of people who have this very interesting way about them and i've already kind of think i know 
better and I'm not really listening. <laughs> and I was like, why don't I just put on the hat of imagining this possibility that their viewpoint of the world is a real viewpoint? Um, and just I can always put my own hat back on again afterwards. Why don't I just try and live the world through their lens for a bit and just go, okay, fully interconnected and and sort of manifestation type realm, which is the way that they're experiencing and seeing the world. And of course, in that moment, life completely changed. You know, everything is now a gift and every problem and struggle is, is just the blessing for me to get through. And, and, you know, so those sorts of moments on my journey were like phenomenally beautiful for me and really enriching. And I didn't hold that viewpoint fully all the way in the rest of my life, but having had like maybe a two years of abiding in that space was phenomenal and so much happened for me which is amazing bloody hell bruce well let's do some more things together why don't we establish some sort of commune somewhere and i'm not going to live in it it's too hard <laughs> no, no, we should think of what we can do i'm very glad that louis Ferru. yeah me too man match made us into a podcast yes i've really me enjoyed no, really likewise really beautiful i knew it, i knew it'd be so nice i know it'd be beautiful even the picking up the dog poo on the lawn before we started <laughs> was pretty good wasn't it yeah enjoyed that <laughs> so much nice love one. man thank <laughs> you you too thanks mate cheers well that was a fantastic episode with me and bruce parry what a charming twinkle-eyed tim roth renegade he is a real life indiana jones escaping the mundanity harvesting humanity um if you uh, want to let me know you can tag me on instagram at russell brand or tweet me at rusty rockets with a hashtag under the skin you can follow me on all sorts of other things like tiktok and linkedin why don't you go back and listen to neil degrasse tyson or Ken ross who uh, Bruce was mentioning there, the former Foreign Service diplomat turned anarchist. Could anarchy be the answer? Are new ideas and systems emerging even now in the cemetery of our dying civilization? I suppose cemetery for dead people officially, but you get the sort of general poetic direction that I'm flowing in. Sign up to my mailing list if you're not already on it, russellbrand.com, and uh, I'll talk to you soon because, you know, I love you. This has been Under the Skin from Luminary Media.